With companies looking to add AI tools for their businesses, many are discovering that a one-size-fits-all approach might not be in their best interest. On this episode of Today in Tech, we're going to look at the new world of the AI multiverse. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Joining me on the show today is Lawrence Spracklin. He is a senior technical advisor at Numenta. Welcome to the show, Lawrence. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Keith. Pleasure to be here. So uh, let's just jump right in. Are, are you seeing a rise in sort of smaller, niche-focused, large-language models that focus uh, their intelligence maybe on a single topic rather than sort of these general-purpose large models like ChatGPT, BARD, Bing, all of those big names that you're seeing? Are, are we starting to see smaller ones that are out there, or is there still a lot of attention on these larger models? It's a good question. I think there's there's sort of two camps, right? There's a lot of people who are basically just sort of taking something like ChatGPT and sticking a UI on it and saying they're done. But I think that, you know, a lot of companies who are serious about doing ML are seeing that, you know, these sort of Oracle models are great for general search, right? You can have a couple of these God models. You know, I've been out there and I've sort of asked it, you know, hey, give me details about my Husky. Tell me all these fun things. And that's great for a general search. But if I want to ask it about my product details or if I want it to give my customers support, I do want something that's much more focused, much more nuanced, right? And also up to date, right? I was even doing some experimentation this morning, right? And I was looking at ChatGPT and I was asking it about, you know, some of the libraries that Hugging Faces brought out, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, ChatGPT goes back two years, right? So much has happened in two years, right? right? That the knowledge there is sort of, you know, obsolete's the bad word, but... You have to augment it. There's a lot of work now in retrieval, you know, augmented generation where you're pulling in context and things like that. But at the end of the day, if you're going to do that, why not just use your own? Why not choose a smaller one, fine tune it, focusing it in on your own? It's much more cost effective. The latency is lower. You know, OpenAI is also a little bit of a victim of its own success. We're seeing incredibly high latencies at present. I'm occasionally seeing timeouts and mm -hmm. all sorts of fun stuff that you have to basically, you know, deal with. There's a lot of instability. There's also a lot of people talking about the fact that ChatGPT seems to be regressing, right? And there's a lot of sort of conspiracy theorists talking about why that's the case. Is it the guardrails? Is it they're trying to make it cheaper? You know, but, you know, there's even been some serious papers out there recently talking about that. And so if you can't rely on it giving the response you expect, how can you build your ML infrastructure on top of it? You really need it version locked. Yeah. And well, so ultimately, oh, go ahead. Down, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, keep going. <laughs> you keep going. Uh, I was just going to say it ultimately comes down to what it's always come down to, which is data is king, right? How do you differentiate yourself, right? It's your data. It's your insights. It's your proprietary IP. If it's a level playing field and everyone's just slapped a UI on top of, you know, ChatGPT, how do you differentiate? How do you offer a better service? How do you give it better insights if you're just using sort of commodity LLMs? Yeah, and, and so what I've been talking about with the idea of a AI multiverse is this feeling that a niche topic that has all of the knowledge about that topic could end up being better for a lot of companies and businesses especially if they sort of get into the uh, chatbot space with, with that LLMM. So let's, let's say I'm a company that, that is talking about recipes. I want to make sure that my, my, either my LLM or my, my GPT knows everything about recipes and cooking. And I don't want it to, I don't want any customers to ask it to fix a flat tire 
or how to fix a flat tire. And that's what I'm seeing is that like these niche sort of LLMs are, is that what you're seeing as well? Or am I just assuming that, that, that might not happen? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, most people are not trying to solve a general search problem, right? It is some very focused, well-understood, well-defined problem, right? And what that allows you to do is take a much smaller model. It's much cheaper to run, much simpler to train, much simpler to fine-tune and really focus it in. So it knows everything about recipes and then will just sort of gracefully decline to answer any of these other things. And you also save yourself the embarrassment of it sort of, you know, trying to do to sort of hallucinate weird ideas or you know, even offer competitive products as a solution right because you're sort of controlling the narrative yeah um so i think that's a much more fundamentally stable way to approach deploying generative ai and i, th- and I think you were talking a little bit before on, on another uh, podcast that you were doing about the phase where LLMs are now becoming rapidly commoditized, uh, so much so that the cost of of deploying a GPT is a lot less expensive than than just a year ago. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so I mean, essentially, you know, a lot of these pre-training of these models is still very expensive, right? And, you know, it is coming down as people come up with better and more efficient training mechanisms. And also we come out with a sort of um, you know, universe of LLMs, right? You may not need something that has, you know, a trillion parameters or, you know, 200 million, 200 billion parameters. Rather, you may be able to get away for a finely focused field on something that's sort of 7 billion and things like that. And so they become much more cost effective to leverage and to fine tune. And also what's happening as well now is, you know, the results are a little mixed in some cases, but there's a lot of innovation in what's called parameter efficient fine tuning, right? And so you can even take some of these big models and train them now, fine tune them for your domain on like a single GPU in a matter of hours, mm-hmm. right? And so what that allows you to do is rapidly incorporate new information, rapidly experiment, rapidly refine. And so I think there has been a big paradigm shift from these very large models that you train once and then sort of linger for years because they're too expensive to retrain. And also now, you know, the world is your oyster. I mean, there's just so much choice now in the uh, open, you know, the open source community. The hardest thing is to actually sort of decide which model you want to use. Um, That said, you know, it is costly and you have to think about ML infrastructure to deploy it, right? It's, you know, it's not something you should get into, you know, without, you know, a serious amount of thought. Are a lot of companies even at that stage right now where they need to think about the type of either GPT or LLM that they want to deploy? Or are they still just in that exploratory phase of just trying them before they start deploying them in-house? I think we've seen a lot of people doing experimentation. I think there's very few people out there doing, you know, actually deployed in production at present with their own generative models. Um, You know, I think it's, you can get caught if you're not careful in, you know, there's always going to be something better, right? You know, so, you know, for a while it was like, oh, you know, Falcon was the greatest model out there, right? Yeah. And now you know, that, that that crown's now gone to Llama too. And if you're not careful, you keep looking and chasing perfection. Um, you know, I think that a lot of companies should just grab one of these and, you know, stick with it and keep moving, right? And as long as you do it well, um, and you think about modularity again, it comes back to the data being king, right? It should be almost agnostic what model you're using underneath. It's just a tool, 
right? It's your data, it's your curated data. You should be able to fine tune any model. And so if a better model comes along tomorrow, sure, let's adopt that, right? It doesn't matter fundamentally. So yeah. the work that you're investing, the time you're investing is sort of protected against this sort of gradual march forward of open source models. Okay, so let's let's use my example before of uh, a recipe uh, GPT system. If I'm a company and I only want to have that little multiverse of just it knows everything about recipes and baking and cooking and things like that, would I start with a large uh, LLM GPT type thing and then almost cut slices from this giant pizza and and create my niche LLM? Or do I look for a company that says we have a data set or an LLM that is specifically for cooking or create one that's specifically for cooking. How are companies, how do you see companies approaching the idea of creating some of these niche LLMs? Yeah, no, I think the way you can do it is, you know, you have to be fairly serious about life to want to sort of pre-train your own model, right? But as I said, you know, there's a variety of different model sizes out there from, you know, you just go download them from Hugging Face and things like this, right? And, you know, basically what you want is a size of model that's actually capable of conversing and understanding, right? If you look at some of the models on, you know, Hugging Face that are too small, there's some companies who have built out you know, entire families of these models, starting with, you know, as few as 100 million parameters. Those guys tend to sort of give you, they're, they're too small, right? So you need something probably, you know, in the 5 to 15 billion space, um, such that it understands what people are doing, it acts in a sane way. You want to grab one of these and then if you have your own data set so if you have all the you know data around your recipes and things like that you can then very cost effectively fine-tune um, one of these models right and so basically rather than sort of taking a large model and you know trying to manipulate that you just grab a small model as a starting pace and you know small is a relative term but as i said about you know 15 billion parameters you know fine-tune that with the data you have and then that becomes your proprietary um llm yeah um, and that's what we're seeing a lot of people do. And it's a, it's, it's a quick road to actually having a very powerful model in production. It, it does seem like when we talk about the benefits of this, the smaller approach might make more sense from a cost standpoint, correct? Correct. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing some, you know, I mean, basically you could take one of these models and you could fine tune it for, you know, a couple hundred bucks. Right. And actually have your first generation model out there. Right. Again, it comes down to the data. Right. Mm -hmm. You obviously need an ML understanding. It's not something you can wander in off the street and do right. You need, you know, someone who's understands the libraries, understands the thing. And that's arguably the primary cost in a sense. Right. Is hiring the talent to manipulate the libraries, to do a good fine tuning run, to understand the nuances of how to train these models effectively. But, you know, it really, especially if you do something like parameter efficient fine tuning you, using LoRa or some of the other techniques that are sort of setting the world alight at present, you know, it can literally be like under a hundred bucks to create one of these models for yourself. Yeah. Do you see any, any downsides of, of this approach or, you know, versus sort of taking a big chat GPT, open AI, like a, a big giant one and then building it from there. Well, or just using that as opposed like a company just goes in, we're just going to use this and slap an interface on it. As you said earlier. Uh, you know, if you do things like sort of retrieval augmented generation, right? So basically you'd, you, what you do there is you sort of use chat GPT, right? 
And you know, when someone asks a question about a recipe, you go and grab, use a vector DB, right? You go and grab, you know, some text about the recipe. Mm -hmm. You load that into the context of ChatGPT, and then you ask ChatGPT to sort of summarize it or explain it, right? That could be a very powerful technique as well, because again, it's using your data. The, the the question there is, is that overkill? And a lot of it comes down to sort of, you know, cost and volume and things like that, right? I mean, you know, if your volume is relatively low, that can be a very simple approach, right? But ultimately, you know, again, you're basically just using the sort of natural language understanding of ChatGPT, right? It's not the fact that it knows all these weird facts, right? You're almost telling it, ignore all the facts that mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. I want you to tell me about this recipe I loaded, right? Don't don't forget all the recipes you've seen in your pre-training. Just focus on this. <laughs> and so it can be a powerful approach, but again, it just comes down to, you know, the you know, time to production, speed, you know, where your talents lay and things like that, right? That's you know, ChatGPT is insanely good, right? I mean, I think that if you interact with it, if you ask it general knowledge questions, it is still ahead of all the open source um, out there, right? And so, you know, that is something to keep in mind, right? The other thing that may happen in the fullness of time is that, you know, for some of the smaller models, OpenAI allows you to fine tune them, right? right. And so that, again, could be a valid approach. They don't allow that at ChatGPT at present, right? Um, but, you know, in the future, that could be it. But again, as I was mentioning, it comes back to the fact that it is about your data. And so if you collect your data, if you curate your data, whether you apply it to, you know, Llama 2 today, mm -hmm. you know, GPT-4 in the future, right? That's your value add, right? The actual fine tuning, you know, the LLM has sort of become commodity in a sense, right? And you're going to pick whatever LLM is out there that makes your life easiest and makes the most sense for you in terms of, you know, cost to deploy, cost to maintain and things like that. Yeah, in your in your dealings with a lot of companies that are exploring generative AI and other sorts of projects, what are you seeing? Like where are they succeeding? Where are they using it in in their companies? Are they going after the the low-hanging fruit or are they going after large ambitious projects? I, I would assume the first the first thing I said I think so. I think it's a little bit of everything is what we've seen, right? Is that it's sort of weird, right? It's ChatGPT, you know, basically lit the media aflame, right? You know, woke the world up to where AI was, right? And so we're seeing a lot of companies out there today who are like, whoa, it'd be great to use AI. We need this generative AI stuff, right? And then you drill down into it. And it's like, whoa, you guys could use a BERT, right? This doesn't need generative. In fact, generative is the wrong fit because of the hallucinations and things like this. Maybe you're just looking at classification or something like that, in which case, why are you using a multi-billion parameter you know, generative model? And so a lot of what we're finding is that it's education at present, right? And so a lot of the low-hanging fruit is absolutely the problem that they're tackling. But in many cases, they don't need a generative solution. And so, you know, even small generative models are potentially, you know, maybe a thousand times more expensive to run mm -hmm. than something like that. And so, you know, it's woken people up to the notion of what AI can do. But now it's sort of, you know, let's step back. Let's think about what we're trying to achieve. Again, it comes back to sort of defining the problem. What is the problem we're trying to solve? And then choosing the best tool for the problem. Like, you know, GPT-4, ChatGPT, very sexy. You know, everyone wants to use it. Everyone wants to be in generative AI, but it is expensive. It is very 
fragile, right? You know, you can change one or two words in a prompt and suddenly get wildly different outcomes, right? For a lot of things, these sort of old school stack of encoders, um, BERT style models do perfectly fine. And those guys have been around since, you know, 2018, right? And so in some senses, it's this weird world at present where everyone wants generative and everyone is excited about the prospects. But in reality, it's sort of walking them back and saying, all right, you know, let's look at the problems you have um, and, you know, fix them one by one, right? Let's deploy yeah. AI. There are going to be generative use cases. Right? Yeah. W would you say that that may be the biggest mistake that companies are making when it comes to generative AI is that the CEO has read a magazine article or saw something on the internet or watched this show, for example, and, oh, it's generative AI that will solve all of our problems. Let's go in and spend billions of dollars on this without thinking about exactly. what problems they want to that's solve. That's very much the case, yeah. right? I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, it's very much the case, right? There's a lot of discussion in the CEO levels, the C-suite, the boardrooms even like, hey, we're behind the curve. We need to use generative, right? And so you're just trying to throw it at every problem. And, you know, that that's not the best approach, right? It, it, it can lead to, as I said, you know, misleading results. It can lead to sort of inflated internal projects, whereas in reality, you could focus it down and actually get something into the marketplace a lot quicker. Um, and I think that's, again, what's happening at Generative at present. You know, there's a lot of people talking it up. There's a lot of models out there. There's very few companies that have actually successfully deployed it into production at present, right? Um, it is very expensive. You need the ML infrastructure to run it. And, you know, people are sort of trying to figure out the best models and, you know, all of this kind of fun stuff at present. And so I think we do need a much more pragmatic approach to actually sort of, again, this is my data, this is the problem I'm trying to solve step by step, you know, just solve it. I mean, AI is a tool just like every other tool, right, that we've ever used, right? There's nothing fundamentally different, right? And so, you know, we're definitely peak hyper present. Um, and so, you know, sometimes people get a little carried away by that. Well, that's an interesting point. You, you're, you're now saying that this is now peak. And my next question was going to be, we're only nine months into this. And it does feel like there's already a lifetime of issues that we could be talking about around this technology. Do you see this slowing down or are we going to see another peak in another six, nine, another six to nine months? Like, where do you see Do you see this accelerating or plateauing or even going down in terms of interest? Uh, I think it, it becomes more interesting, but more, I guess, steady state, if you will, right? So when essentially there was this big, you know, everyone was shocked, right? You know, I think a lot of people were very surprised, even including AI practitioners about how good GPT-4 was, how good ChatGPT was, right? A lot of people believed that, you know, we were a ways away from being able to achieve something like that, right? So you had this big sort of media moment. I think what's happening now, if you look at the research landscape and things like this, there's a lot of people working to understand really how these models work how we can use them for different things. You know, we can use them for planning. You know, we can use them for, you know, how, how do we interact and what are the best prompting strategies? How do we get them to do math? How do we get them to reason? Um, and so I think we'll start to see a lot of new application spaces leveraging these models mm -hmm. above and beyond where you may think, oh, it's a chatbot. Right. So, you know, chat is the obvious thing, right? You ask it a question, it gives you a response. But, you know, these things, as I said, you know, can start to do math. They can start to do planning. People are actually starting to use them to sort of control, you know, robots. You know, basically, there's a lot of new use cases that people are figuring out that these large LLMs can do. And so I think that's exciting, right? I think we're going to see, you know, pretty much 
a wide variety of application spaces beyond, you know, classic chat, which get influenced by these models um, going forwards. Yeah, you know, the there's that Gartner hype cycle curve where you go up mm-hmm. and then there's and then it, it eventually it dies down into that what they call the trough of disillusionment. And then it sort of goes up again and you get that sort of plateauing. So where do you feel that generative AI is at that point? Are we still near the top of the hype cycle? Is there going to be more hype and we're about to head to that disillusionment factor or is it, it does it not fit into that that traditional model? I don't know. I'd, I'd like to be optimistic and say that it doesn't fit. Um, and, you know, if we play our cards right, maybe it doesn't. But, you know, it is going to be tough to live up to the expectations that people have around it, right? I mean, ultimately, you know, it's not AGI. It, it's not really thinking, right? It really doesn't understand in a sense, right? You know, yeah. it, it's just predicting the next token, right? And so, you know, I do think there will be, you know, a lot of people who would try to apply it to all sorts of spaces and get frustrated, you know, with the corner cases, right? I mean, we've all used, you know, support chatbots and, you know, literally tearing our hair out from using them, right? I think there's (laughs) going to be a lot of that, right? And a lot of people will deploy it ineffectively or, you know, it will be under-resourced and so the latencies will be too long or you know, it won't be updated. So it's giving them outdated information or it's hallucinating. And so you'll start to see more of this, you know, sort of naysaying and, you know, creep into the dialogue. I think we are in that sort of, you know, yeah, we're peak hype. And so I think yeah. we are probably going to see a little bit of a, do you think a sort we, of level setting as we figure out what it can and can't do. Yeah, Do you think we're going to see more spectacular failures of the technology before we start seeing spectacular successes? Or could it, could we downplay some of these failures and just say no we've 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 got a lot of success out of this i think we're going to see i think there's been a lot of success i think we will see a lot of success i think in, we are going to see a lot of upheaval in companies um you know i think there's a lot of companies that have spent a while building sort of artisan um nlp ML stacks right invested a lot you know they started doing this before llms took off you know, basically, you could now go in and replace those companies um, with an LLM. You know, years of work could be just wiped away overnight, right? So I think we will see, to some degree, out with the old school ML companies and in with the new, unless those guys can sufficiently, you know, can adapt sufficiently fast. And, you know, there is no sacred cow and sort of say, all right, you know, yes, this got us this far, but now we need to throw it all out and adopt a new one. I think there's also going to be, you know, a lot of companies crashing. I mean, you look at the funding that's coming out of present for any idea, slap a UI on top of GPT and call it a generative AI company and they're raising so much money at present. They can't help but be a winter around that. Well, that that reminds me of almost two years ago in the robotics and automation space, there was so much funding just by calling yourself an AI company and you would get a ton of money, whether you were actually AI or not. And before the generative AI companies came out, I, I wanted to ask you that, you know, there's, there's been machine learning companies, there's been deep learning companies. Has the generative AI hype taken all of the wind out of the sails for some of those traditional companies? You did mention that you, you see a lot of these companies either going out of business or just quickly adapting to the generative AI space. You know, is there still a lot of confusion in the marketplace about what certain companies do? Or are you finding that people, they're just going to slap on Gen AI to their to their uh, their marketing pitches. 
Uh, I don't know. I think a lot of people are just slapping Gen AI everywhere, right? I mean, you go for these hype cycles, you know, it wasn't long ago that everyone was talking about blockchain and how blockchain was going to revolutionize the world, right? I mean, you know, yeah. every startup had to use the blockchain in some fashion, right? Whether they needed to or not. I think we're going to see that with generative AI. I do think it is fundamentally different, though. There is real value. I do believe it's going to revolutionize, you know, the world and the way we do things. Uh, but there are a lot of companies that, you know, are going to have to adapt, you know, very quickly, right? Arguably, the thing that's toughest at present, right, is it's almost impossible to get GPUs, right? So, um, you know, I think if anything could hold us back a little bit, I mean, you know, the, 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 it's just impossible to get GPUs at present. And so as more and more companies start to want to do generative AI and train their own models, I think that's going to be a fundamental rate limiter for a while until we, you know, fix some of those supply chain problems, right? I mean, you, you talk to any of the big, you know, cloud providers, and, you know, it used to be, you know, a cloud was sort of compute on demand, but now they're like, no, you know, there's a multi-month waiting list before we can give you a GPU. Wow. Um, wow. So that, so that could end up slowing down the market just because of the lack of equipment and the lack of GPUs, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, everyone is just massively oversubscribed at present in terms of um, demand for GPUs, right? It's extremely hard to get them. Um, you know, for a lot of the new companies in, that, in the space who are trying to do this, it, it can definitely be a, a, a limiting factor. All right. And so I ask uh, this question to a lot of our AI guests that we have on the show. I, I, I give them the role of the emperor of AI. So you are now the emperor. Uh, what would be the most important ruling that you make from this point on in terms of the development of the technology? Would you, you know, make an edict about more guardrails or would you sort of silence the doomsayers? speed up or slow down the development of, of the technology, make sure that we're keeping humans. There's a lot of different things that, that you could do as emperor of AI. What, what would some of the things you give me one example of something you would do? Um, yeah, no, it's too, too much responsibility. <laughs> uh, um, I do think that there is going to be a lot of dangers to AI, not in the sort of Terminator, you know, taking over the world, you know, yeah. mining paper view that sometimes you you hear about but um there is a lot of potential for misinformation for deep fakes and things like that and i do worry about that especially in sort of you know the world today that's sort of politically charged and things like that mm -hmm. i'm not sure i have an edict around that um but you know i think we do need to be mindful of that and we do need to invest in technology that can help you know, prevent us from being awash with this. I mean, the world is sort of cynical enough without people not believing anything they hear or see. Um, and so I don't know how to combat that. So I think that would be one thing. And then if I could have another. Um, sure, you're the emperor. You can have as many just, as you want. <laughs> just, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's going to change the way we program. It's going to change the way we work, everything, right? I think colleges and education need to wake up to that as well, right? I'm seeing a lot of people now saying, oh, I'm not going to go to college because... Like that, you know, what they're teaching in AI is years out of date, right? And so it is, it is a brave new world, right? And I think that, you know, people need to do that. And then my final, I'm going to choose three, even though I'm only allowed one. So I apologize is I am very mindful of the cost, right? You know, if you look at the carbon cost, if you look at the energy cost of these things, I think we do need to take more seriously optimizations and things that we can do to bring down the cost of that. If you go to Hugging Face, mm -hmm. a lot of these companies now are disclosing how many tons of CO2 is produced, right? When they, you know, train these models. Yeah. And it is significant, right? And so, you know, I, I do think that as we build this industry out, we need to be mindful of the, you know, the energy impact of that and be thinking about 
you know, how do we make this more efficient? There is so many inefficiencies today in how we run these models and how we train these models. We could definitely, you know, bring it down by you know, a couple of orders of magnitude. Um, but, you know, it's just not expedient to do so. It's cheaper to train them than it is yeah. to think about how to optimize them. And you're, um, certainly, you're certainly allowed to do as many edicts as you want. I, I have named you the emperor of AI, so at least for this, exactly. at least for this show. Um, <laughs> Sort uh, the the question. Uh, an easier question for you then would be: Do you remain optimistic about this, given all of the headlines that you see about this technology? Whether it's the Terminator, whether it's the Jobs, whether it's all of the sort of the negative stuff, or do you remain positive about the ben- the future benefits and that as humans we will be able to work with AI rather than against it? Um. I'm definitely positive, I think, right? I mean, I think you can also just not stop technology as well, right? So, you know, I think we are where we are, whether we like it or not. But ultimately, I I do think it can be a force for good, right? Um, You know, there's so much repetitive work that can be eliminated by it, right? You know, there's so much the ability to sort of free us. I mean, even in programming today, right? You know, it just removes a lot of the grunt work that allows you to think about what am I trying to achieve rather than sort of manipulating the low level lines of Python, right? And I don't view that as a bad thing. And so you will see sort of alarmist things like it's going to get rid of programming. Yeah, maybe some jobs, but only the very sort of your your repetitive ones, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're down at the level of just cranking out a micro Jira, then maybe, right? Because that micro Jira could be turned into code. But if you're sort of thinking more about what you're trying to achieve, I think it's an accelerant, right? And I, I think it allows more startups, more people with ideas to basically try and build those companies and see those ideas to fruition, right? So I see it as very positive. I see it as, you know, world-changing. All right. All right. Uh, Lawrence, thank you very much for being on the show today. It was a great conversation. My pleasure, Keith. Thanks for having me on. All right. That's all the time we have for today's episode. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel, add any comments that you have below, and join us every week for new episodes of Today in Tech. I'm Keith Shaw. Thanks for watching.